0: Would you pray with me once again? Father, as we approach our time in your word, I pray that you would illumine our minds and our understanding, that you would allow the word spoken to be just what it is you would have us hear, that we would grasp the meaning of what you have said so that we know you. Thank you for this privilege, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please take your Bibles with me this morning and turn in them to Romans chapter 8. I would imagine by now you could probably just put your Bible on the end and just let it flop open. It would probably flop to that section. Romans chapter 8. It's been a wonderful time for us to hear the words of Romans over and over and over again concerning our spiritual position as Christians in the sight of God. The Christian is in a position of no condemnation. What a monumental truth. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. And I trust that you have personally been pondering that reality concerning your own life before God. If you are a true believer, that is your reality and you ought to be pondering it before God. You are not condemned. We have a tendency to condemn ourselves. We have a tendency to look in the mirror and see all of the ugliness of the reality of life in which we fail on a regular basis to do that which God requires of us and calls us to and has equipped us for. And so we have a tendency to condemn ourselves. And yet from God himself is those words, you are not condemned. You are not condemned. That is not a position for just some who believe upon Christ. It is not a special group of Christians that are in that position before God. It is every Christian's position. And therefore, we have seen that it is the Christian's character to live according to the Spirit of God that has been given to us through our relationship with Jesus Christ. In other words, since we have been unified with Christ, Paul says, therefore, you have the Spirit of Christ in you. Since you have been unified with Christ by faith and you are in this position of no condemnation, as a seal of your guarantee, God has sent His Spirit. Jesus Christ has given us His Spirit to live within us. And both of those realities, being unified with Christ and the Spirit of God living in us, is proof of the validity of our position before God of no condemnation. Then we began to see last Lord's Day that because of our now exalted position and in light of our new character by means of the Spirit of God in us, therefore we are not debtors to the flesh. We are not debtors to the flesh. So this takes us then from thinking of our salvation in the sense of just a future glory the reality that one day we will be able to do and we will do perfectly all that God asks us because we will be glorified, this takes us then from that view in our minds to practical living right now. How do we live as Christians right now? In other words, we do not owe the flesh anything. We are not debtors To the flesh. We owe the flesh nothing, and by flesh, Paul means our sinful life. We owe nothing to our sinful life that was devoid of any thought of God at any time. We do not owe anything to that old sinful life. In fact, now we owe everything to Christ. Now we owe everything as Christians. Christ and therefore right now in our living we are to be continually putting to death the deeds of the flesh through the power of the Spirit that has been given to each and every Christian each and every one of us has been given the power of God so allow me to remind us again the Spirit has been given not Just to some of us. The Spirit of God has not simply been given only to those who somehow are the super-Christian. The Spirit of God has been given to every Christian. He has been given to all of those who have believed in Jesus Christ. Therefore, we can never say and we can never convince ourselves into the position that we cannot obey. Or that something is simply too tough for us to obey. Just as we learned last Lord's Day from 2 Peter chapter 1. We have been given not some of the tools that we need for godly living. No. Instead we have been given everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything pertaining to life and godliness. And if we would be diligent to exercise what we have been given, then we will show ourselves to be the Christians that we are, and our lives will then and therefore be useful in the hands of God. That is the essence of the words of Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and following. That is what Peter is saying. We looked at that in detail last week. And so we bore out some practical implications for that for our lives in light of that reality, in light of that truth. And we said this, number one, because of our position in Christ and that we have been given everything and we have the Spirit of God, the power of God in us, then it is absolutely foolishness. It is foolhardy, we said, for us to not obey the Word of God. It is simply foolishness for those who claim Christianity and who are truly saved to go on living disobediently to the Word of God. We are no longer in the flesh, verse 9 of Romans chapter 8 says. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. And so, God is saying to us that since we are Christians, then we must realize that we are no longer where we used to be positionally. Sometimes our problem in Christianity and sometimes our problem in obedience is the reality that we we just don't really settle in the fact of who we are. We forget to realize just who we are. Our continual desire, uh, uh, the Scripture says, our continual desire and our drive of life before God saved us was to be living after the flesh. That's who we were. We just did sin. We loved it. That's what we lived for. That's who we were. This is why we say in theological terms that uh, someone who is unsaved follows their life according to their nature. They are dead. They do dead things. They love the deadness. Why? Because that's who they are by nature. But we are not that. We are are not dead by nature. We used to be outside the life of God. We used to be dead by nature. We used to be apart from the Spirit, but not anymore. Not anymore. Now we are in the Spirit, verse 9 says. So why then, why then would we ever go back to living for the fleshly thing? Why would we ever expend our energy on that stuff? Being a Christian means that you have been transferred from the domain of darkness. We've been transferred out of that. So how foolhardy is it for us, the Christian, to not live in obedience to the things of the Spirit? It's absolutely ridiculous. It's foolhardy. So that was the first implication that we drew from that understanding. And then secondly, because it's ridiculous for us to obey the flesh, we said that we must kill sin and we kill the deeds of the flesh. Why? Because we understand who we are. And because we understand that sin is only a temporary problem. Sin is no longer an eternal problem for us. The eternal reality, the eternal judgment has been taken care of. Sin now is only a temporary problem. It's like the black flies in New Hampshire. Thankfully, they're a temporary problem. That's what sin is. We are not under sin anymore. The body may be dead because of sin. We are in this physical realm. We need to relinquish. This one day, this mortal will take on immortality, the Bible says. But the spirit is alive. You have been raised with Christ. Your soul, your spirit is alive. It will never die. And therefore, we have been set free. So do not live for the temporal. That's the implication. You have been set free. To live for the temporal is to live in the realm of death. To live a life of the flesh is to live a life that always leads to death. Therefore, we must not pander to it. And so we can rightfully say, and we should never believe, that we are somehow ill-equipped to do what is right before God. And since we are equipped, then God expects us to walk according to it. So that's a brief review of where we were last week. I had to say all of that because unfortunately last week didn't get recorded. And so now we have, we're caught up in a brief form. You say, well, you could have stopped really soon last week if you'd have just done that section, like that. Well, God wouldn't have it that way so this morning, I want to come to the third proof. We've talked about two proofs of this declaration in verse 1. We've talked about the unity we have with Christ. That's proof number one. We've talked about the work of the Holy Spirit in us, the character change that has taken place in us because of the Holy Spirit. There's a third proof here, and we're going we're gonna to have seven before we're done here, but this is the third proof of our position of no condemnation before God, and it is this, the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. We've talked about this and, and, and alluded to it. In other words, this is our identity. Our unity with Christ is our position. The, the Holy Spirit's work in us, that's our character, This is our identity. This is our identity. The presence of the Holy Spirit in us. And again, I want to draw our attention to the reality of the first words of verse 14. Verse 14, Paul says, For all who are being led. For all who are being led. I want us to hear that again Because this is the way sanctification happens in practice. This is the way you grow in maturity. This is the way you grow in victory in your Christian life over the deeds of the flesh. Those who are being led. Sanctification is happening with those who are being led. I hope you notice that Paul did not say that it is or those who are being coerced by the Spirit. That's not what he says. He does not say we are being compelled by the Spirit as if you and I as Christians have nothing to do. We just sit back, let go, let God, everything's going to be fine. Put your Bible under your pillow, sleep on it, and somehow, metamorphically, it's going to just sink into your life and you're going to become what is Christ-like. It doesn't work like that. There is no thought here of compulsion being implied. But there is the implication that we must willfully and we must diligently submit ourselves to the leading of the Spirit in us. Those who are led by the Spirit are the ones who are willfully and diligently submitting themselves to the leading of the Spirit. In other words, there is a God-ordained cooperation that takes place for your practical sanctification. The Christian and the Spirit of Christ in us is in this God-ordained cooperation so that the killing of the flesh takes place. So the mortifying of the deeds of the flesh happens. Listen, we cannot mortify the sinful deeds of the flesh without the Spirit. You cannot do it on your own. You could not become saved by yourself. You could not breathe as a dead person on your own. You needed somehow to have some outside intervention that would make you alive. And now that you are alive, the Spirit indwells you. You cannot kill the deeds of the flesh that want to continually attack without the Spirit. And the Spirit will not do the killing of the flesh without our submissive involvement with the Word of God. Let me say that again. The Spirit, you will not kill the deeds of the flesh without the Spirit, and the Spirit of God will not mortify the deeds of the flesh in you without your submission to the Word of God. It will not happen. You will not kill sin without the Word of God. Being practice, this is the way in which God is designed that we be sanctified. This is the way in which God is designed here and now as we live on this earth, that we become more and more like Christ in practice. We are like Christ in position, we are righteous before God. Now we have to live that out in practice. The spirit is in the position of leading, and we must follow the leader. And the beauty of this reality is that there is an assurance being implied here in paul 's words, not an assurance in the sense of our salvation that that certainly covers this entire chapter paul uh, rather really from chapter six on Paul wants to ensure that we we understand full salvific assurance, but that's not the assurance i'm talking about here. There is an assurance here that if we follow the spirit and we follow His leading by submission to the Word of God, there is an assurance that you will, in fact, kill the deeds of the flesh. You can be rest assured that if you follow the Spirit's leading through submission to the Word, you will kill the deeds of the flesh. That's the assurance that's implied here. Think about this in your own life. You have a sinful pattern that you've been seemingly unable to kill you prayed that God would take it away. Please, God, just take it away. You've tried to kill it with all kinds of behavioral techniques. You've attempted all kinds of various tricks, mind games, all in hopes that the sinful pattern that you seem to be caught in will just go away. Time and time again, you try it again. Time and time again, you try something new. And you find that you're right back at it again. Does that describe anybody? Why? Why? Because you have not been following the lead of the Spirit. You have been leading the parade against your sin. You have been leading the parade. Against your sin. You have done it your way. You have even possibly convinced yourself that overcoming that particular sin is impossible. And that you don't have what it's going to take anyway. And yet, the reality is. We have clear instructions from the Word of God that we must follow the Spirit. We must follow the Spirit. And so, what must we do? What must we do in order to follow the Spirit? Well, it's very simple. It's very simple. We must open the Word of God. And we must study the Word of God. And we must believe what it says. Believe that what it says is the way to victory so that we might know what God would have and then we must follow that. We are to do it. Notice this is exactly what Paul says is the reality of those who are... The children of God. This is what the sons of God do. Verse 14, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. This is what the sons of God do. The sons of God mortify the deeds in the flesh by following after the Spirit, by going to the Word of God, by studying the Word of God, by intaking the Word of God, believing it, and then doing it. Don't just be, James said, a hearer of the Word, but be a what? Doer. You want to have victory over your sin? You want to have an assurance that you will kill sin? Go to the Word of God and begin to put it into practice. That's what the Spirit uses. This is what the sons of God do. Jesus said it a different way in John 13. If you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments you will obey me. That's just another way of saying the same thing that Paul is saying here. This is what the sons of God do. And if you are diligent in your following, by and through the Spirit's power, you will be fruitful at killing sin. The deeds of the flesh will be killed. And you know what that that reveals to us when that takes place in our life? A real, genuine relationship. There is a real, genuine relationship happening. In fact, it says here that we have been adopted into the family of God. Notice verse 15. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again. Fear of what? Fear that you're aren't in this position of no condemnation. Fear that that sin that you have done is, it leads to the place where God is no longer your Father, that He's condemning you. We have not received the spirit of slavery leading to the fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Now that is our new identity. This is why I said the Spirit of God in us, this is our new identity. Our identity is not one of slavery, Paul says, but now one of sonship. We are one. We are sons. So think about it. Think about the logical order. Paul's very logical, very didactic in how he argues his points. It's like climbing a ladder. He makes the point, and then he begins to bolster it up with his evidence. Prior to our conversion, we were slaves. We know that. We were under bondage to sin. Paul made that point very clear. In fact, all the way back in chapter 3, nobody has an excuse. We're under sin. But after we are saved, a new relationship is established. We are sons of God and we are no longer to fear condemnation. In other words, God is no longer the judge of us. God is, the relationship between us and God is no longer enemy with conqueror. It's no longer judge and and the, the condemned standing before the judge, that was our relationship before. But now he is our father, Paul said. That's a massive change. That's the essence of the word Abba here in verse 15. It's an Aramaic term. It's not, a, not even a Hebrew term. It's an Aramaic term which carried the idea of closeness in relationship. It's Abba, Father. It's a close relationship. It's not simply God, the Father. This is a Father-Son relationship. We can even say, Dear Father. That's the idea. That's the idea. We have been adopted by God. Now, there's, over the years, been several adoptions in my extended family, family. Uh, that have taken place, and every one of them has been similar in the sense that under the adoption rules of our world, um, that that person gets privileges. But I want us to understand and know that adoption, in our normal understanding, is not fully what adoption is with God. Adoption in our world and in our understanding, adoption comes with no birth tie with it. There's no birth tie to it. You say, what do you mean by birth tie? I mean that when a child is adopted in our world, they become part of the family to which they have been adopted. And legally, they... They receive in that adoption all the kindness that that family offers, all the love that comes with that adoption, all the legal rights that are associated with that adoption. There are several kids in my extended family who are adopted children into that extended family. They have all the rights of the rag name and all of those kinds of ideas that come with it within those families. But the one thing that they will never have in this world is a birth tie with their new family. There is no birth tie that they have. But in the divine realm, in the spiritual realm, we need to understand that there is a birth tie that comes with our adoption. There is a birth tie that comes with our adoption. Why do I say that? Because the Bible tells us that all who believe upon Jesus Christ are born of God. We are born of God. John 1, verse 12 and 13. But as many as received Him to them, He gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You, as a Christian, have a birth tie with God, the Father. We are children of God and as such we are in the family of God and we receive in that adoption in the family of God not just all that comes to us spiritually. That is included in all of that in being in the family of God but we have a birth tie in it. We are born of God. Because we have the Spirit in us who is our guarantee. As Paul said to the Ephesian believers, he is the the down payment guarantee that guarantees the reality of all that we have and the inheritance. We can now cry out to our Father. Abba Father. And in that crying, we can expect his loving care and consideration for us as his child. You see, this is our new identity. And watch this we'd notice that this is exactly what Paul is telling us. Notice verses 16 and 17. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Paul says the Spirit testifies with our spirit. The Spirit of Christ that lives within us testifies with our spirit. It's interesting, in the Hebrew culture, you had to have two witnesses to confirm anything. Nothing was born on the confirmation of one witness. You always had to have two or more witnesses. And here we have two witnesses confirming the reality of our new identity. We could even say we have two witnesses proving the validity of our position before God of no condemnation our inner spirit and the Holy Spirit. Those are the two witnesses. And because we are children of God, then we are also heirs of God and fellow heirs with jesus christ therefore all that god has and all that is in christ all that christ is afforded because he's the firstborn son becomes now ours it's ours that's a remarkable statement isn't it i mean is it any wonder that that paul said you have the riches beyond anything you you have the riches and the glories of heaven We are heirs of God. How amazing is that? That God, the only true God, would take you and I and do all that He had to do in order to redeem us so that He could take us into such a personal relationship that we would actually be His heirs. didn't come by means of us, it came by means of the earthly work of Jesus Christ alone. Without that, we would still be without hope, without God. And so we are told that not only are we heirs of God, but we are co-heirs, fellow heirs with Christ. You see, beloved, that simply means that whatever is Christ's is to be shared with us. The glory that is Christ is shared with us. The eternal wonder that is with Christ is shared with us. All that Christ receives from the Father, we are heirs to whatever is Christ. And that understanding, that realization for us, that grasping of that truth and that understanding ought to motivate us to endure right here, right now. Which is the intent of Paul's words at the end of verse 17. If we, indeed, we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. You see, Paul isn't saying, hey, he's not saying that if we suffer, then we will become glorified. That's not what he's saying. He, he's not saying that if we suffer, and uh, uh, that suffering is somehow the way to glorification. Uh, that's not what Paul's saying. No, he, he's not saying that because that would be just another way of saying that we earn our salvation. That would be just another way of saying that the, the basis of whatever I receive from God has everything to do with me. That if I go through enough kinds of suffering, kinds of difficulty, kinds of pain, if I beat myself enough, then then somehow in the future, God will see that as some kind of merit that I've earned glorification. That's not what Paul's saying. No, what Paul means is that suffering is always the way of life for the Christian. Suffering is always the way of life for the Christian here on earth. In other words, suffering with Christ is the normal experience for believers. This is the other side of our new identity. We are heirs of God and heirs with Christ of the highest order. There could not be a greater heirship to have On the other side, we are sufferers first. We are sufferers first. In apostolic times, to be a Christian meant very possibly you would lose your life to proclaim the name of Christ. All of the apostles, in the end, lost their life because they identified with Jesus Christ. We have heard this before. In fact, Jesus said to his disciples on the night before he died, The world will hate you. Why? Because they hate me. And so Paul makes it clear to us our identity with Christ is an identity with suffering. Our identity with Christ is an identity with trouble. Is it any wonder Is it any wonder when you think about that and you realize that about the Christian life, is it any wonder that the false teachers of today don't tell you that? The false gospel of our day will say, come to Jesus, He will make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. Come to Jesus, He'll fix everything in your life. Come to Jesus and have your best life now. That's a false gospel. And the false gospel will say that Jesus wants you happy. And by happy, they mean rich beyond your wildest imagination, access to everything the world has to offer. No bars, no ties, just have it all. No troubles, no struggles, just wonderful, trouble-free life. That's what they mean. That's a damning lie deception of satan himself who always appears as an angel of light here here's the the gospel of satan satan says if god is god and if jesus christ was his son then your life would not have any trouble because you believe in jesus The reason that you have trouble in your life, even after you've believed, is because belief in Jesus is a big sham. That's the gospel of Satan. This is what's behind the questions of people's questions in life of if God is such a loving God, why does bad things happen to good people in this life? Listen, brothers and sisters, according to the Scriptures, none of us are good. Nobody's good. In fact, nobody's getting anything they don't deserve except the Christian who has des- gotten undeserved mercy. We did not deserve it. The sad part, many buy into the lie. Many buy into the gospel of Satan and they begin to say, well, if, if I'm really a Christian, then why is my life having so much trouble. Why does all this happen to me? I'll just say it this way. The suffering that we undergo here because of our identity with Jesus Christ and as Christians, by God's design, is part of our preparation for the glory that is awaiting us. It's part of our preparation for the glory that is awaiting us. Hebrews chapter 2 Verse 10 says that Jesus himself, listen to this, this is incredible, Jesus himself was made perfect through sufferings. I thought he was perfect. That's not what that word means, become by nature perfect. He was by nature perfect, but he was trained in that perfection through suffering. Chapter 5 of Hebrews, verses 8 and 9, says that although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Christ took on full humanity, he was fully man, yet without sin. He suffered just like we do, yet without sin. He learned obedience from the things He suffered. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9-7 to 7 says that because Jesus endured the death on the cross, here's what it says, God highly exalted Him and gave Him the name which is above every name. Why? So that the name of Jesus, every knee would bow, in heaven and in things in the earth and things under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What's the point? The point is that the same process works in us. Same process. God is making us ready For the greatness of our inheritance. For the greatness of our coming glory and the inheritance in Christ. God is making us ready. He is perfecting us in practice. He is perfecting us in actual outworking of obedience. And that comes the same way for us as it did for Jesus Christ through suffering. Paul said to the Corinthian believers, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. I know some of us are going through some pretty difficult times. Some of that stuff is brought on by our own foolishness and our own willful disobedience and yet much of it is brought on because we are suffering for Christ. God knows both sides of that equation, and yet he's using it all for your glory and preparing you for the inheritance to come. And Paul says you ought to see all of that as simply momentary light afflictions because it's producing an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 71, It is good for me that I was afflicted. It's good for me that I was afflicted. The reality, beloved, is that we learn things about our Savior when we are suffering that we could never learn any other way. We learn things about Christ, the one whom we're following that we would never learn any other way had God not taken us down the path of suffering. Oh, it's true. Listen, our flesh hates it. Our flesh hates suffering. There's not one person in this room, if they're being honest with themselves, would say, oh, yeah, it's great, man. I love it. I can't wait for the next big pothole to come. We just don't do that. Our flesh hates it. It hates suffering, but all who have learned lessons from it can truly thank God that he allowed it, can't we? In order for his work to be fully accomplished in us, we must suffer. We must suffer. That's the road to future glory, suffering. It doesn't come any other way. No other means by which we can become more Christ-like. We must suffer. And we will suffer for all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The Bible says we must suffer. So what's a Christian? We've been answering that question all along. What's a Christian? Paul says you're now not under condemnation. So what's a Christian? We've been drawing an implicational definition from all that we're studying as we walk through this. By the way, just so you know, I've mentioned Martin Lloyd-Jones from time to time throughout this, and and I have uh, some commentaries from Martin Lloyd-Jones. I want you to understand something. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote 14 volumes of commentary notes on Romans. And he only got into chapter 14. 900 of those pages was on chapter 8 alone. So if you think I'm taking a long time. (laughs) What is a Christian? A Christian is a person who's united with Jesus Christ. Actually united with Christ. For those who are in Christ Jesus. That's an actual, real union with Jesus Christ. Inseparable union. And every Christian is united with Christ. A Christian is a person who actually has the Spirit of God living in them. They actually have the Spirit of God in them. You are not in the flesh but you are in the Spirit if the Spirit of God dwells in you. You see, it's a, it's a reality of two sides. The Spirit of God dwells in you, and therefore you are not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit.
1: So the Spirit of God is in
0: you and, and envelops you. You are in that realm A Christian is united with Jesus Christ. A Christian is a person who is actually in a reality and relationship because he has the Spirit of God living in them. The dark closet that they once were now has the light shining brightly. Everything has changed. Everything is new. And a Christian is a person who is striving for obedience to God by the power of the Spirit that is in them so that God may be glorified through them. Christian is a person who is striving for obedience to God by the Spirit so that God may be glorified in them. And then... Lastly, a Christian is a person who is identified as a child of God. And because they are a child of God, they will suffer in this life. The degree of suffering is all up to God. The degree of suffering and what He must take us through in order that we might learn from Him to be like Christ and learn obedience in that way differs for every Christian, but every Christian will suffer. And we are enduring. Why? Because we're looking to the inheritance and glory to come. We're looking to the glory that is ours. This is exactly how Paul Paul said it to the believers in Colossae. Chapter 3, and I'll just end with this. If then you have been raised up with Christ right? We could say it like Paul. If you are in that position of no condemnation, which all true Christians are, if you have been raised up with Christ, which is the same reality for every Christian, you are alive in Christ. If you are alive in Christ, then keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things on the earth. Why? Because you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Therefore, consider, the members of your earthly body is dead to immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. On account of these things, wrath of god will come and in them you also once walked and you were living in them but now you also put them aside put aside anger and wrath and malice and slander and abusive speech from your mouth don't lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him in which there is no distinction between Greek or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free men, but Christ is all and in all. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave. Beyond all that, put on love. Love's the perfect bond of unity. You see? You see, it's our, it's our understanding of who we are. It's our understanding of who we're linked to. It's our understanding of what we have by way of the Spirit. It's our submission to the Word of God. And when we do that, we will be victorious. We will not simply be assured of our salvation, but we will be assured that we will kill the deeds of the flesh. When you do that, suffering will happen. You will fight against yourself with every effort. Your flesh will fight back with all of its being. People around you will not like you anymore because you want to live righteously. You'll call them out. You'll expose dark things will suffer but consider it a momentary light affliction compared to the the massive weight of the glory that is to come in Christ we'll get more next time let's pray Father thank you for this, this brief time this morning to open your word and to look at the reality of having the spirit in us and our identity being a child of you an heir to the creator, unfathomable, beyond our mind's comprehension. You have given us everything we need for life and godliness, Lord, we pray that we would be diligent to appropriate what you have given us, put it into practice that we might walk obediently before you. Oh, we know the world hates you and therefore it will hate us. But none of that ought to matter for we look to the things above, setting our mind on the things above that we might continue to treat one another in the way Christ has treated us, that others might see Christ, even if that means they kill us. Lord, we want to trust you. Thank you for giving us this picture. May you be honored in our obedience to it of our great Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.